so welcome to our meetup tonight mm. and uh, we have a uh, professor Alan Dix here today uh, before we start so I just want to introduce myself my name is Yunisari and I'm the CEO of UX Indonesia and co-founder of CX Insight like uh, and also we have Josh here like a uh, is uh, director of UX Indonesia and co-founder of CX Inside. So we started doing a lot of uh, things like this, but instead of online, we're doing it offline. So we are very privileged tonight that uh, we have um, uh, Professor Alan Dix. He's the director of the Computational Foundry from Swansea University, Wales, UK. Okay, here go, Alan. Okay, yeah, so, so I'm Alan Dix, um, yes, and I'm going to talk about uh, deep di digitality. Uh, and digital thinking. Um, and I always have to breathe before I say digitality. Uh, you should never invent terms that you can't say. Um, so first of all, just a few words about myself. I'll just uh, introduce myself a bit. So um, I come, uh, so I've come from Swansea University, which is in the south of Wales. Um, but I, and I'm actually a Welshman by heart. I was brought, born and, and brought up in Wales, though didn't live there for many, many years. Um, and I also mentioned though, for about 10 years, I lived on Tyree. And there's quite a few things in my writing, but also the kinds of ways I've been thinking that were due to that. Tyree was this little island off the coast of Scotland. Um, and crucially, it helped me think very much about the role of technology at the margins of society, both the physical margins, but also the socioeconomic margins. And I'm involved in projects to do with social justice and digital technology and things like that. Um, the Foundry itself, I'm the director of the Computational Foundry. It's, um, I think, a £31 million project with the Welsh Government and the European Union and the University contributing. Um, and it's partly it's a building with mathematics and computer science in. Um, but it's also about a community, about both those people within the building and also trying to tie together the digital threads across the university and to some extent across Wales as well. But perhaps even most important, it's a building that's got a mission, which is to do fundamental computational research that is for the good of the world. Um, and my job as director is to try and make sure it's not just a building <laughs> with maths and computing in, um, that, but actually uh, fulfills that mission and builds the community. Um, and I'm, now I'm just going to, I've got a slide with a whole list of lots of, I, I get interested in everything. And so there's a load, load of things there um, that I'm not going to talk about today. But I thought I'd pop them up just in case anything was interesting. So uh, glance quickly. And, oh, actually it's not on that list, weirdly. Um, but one of the things, two things I will brief, briefly mention though, is I've got a creativity course. It's just come out with interactiondesign.org. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will have used uh, Interaction Design foundations materials um, but also I've got loads of video that I've produced over the years so I'm going to I'm because of the, the period and lots of people needing to do more online things I'm going to try and um, the things through interaction design foundation get very very well edited to a very high quality standard um, but also I think I'm going to try and get out material as much as I can even though it's not edited to that sort of standard, because I think it's a time when people really uh, need as much as possible of that for teaching purposes, for their own education and everything. Okay, but what am I gonna, gonna talk about today? So I'm gonna talk about two things. So first of all, deep digitality. So, um, the, uh, well, and if I tell you what it is in this slide, I'll, I'll not have anything else to say, but it is about trying to re radically reimagine absolutely everything. Okay, in the world um, with a digital eye. 
Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about digital thinking, which is a bit about that digital eye. What does it mean to have that digital eye? Um, and the sort of patterns of thinking. I'll probably end up talking more about the former than the latter, because when I try and squash them back in, I usually find myself just rushing too fast on the second part. Um, but I, th I hope I'll set the scene and then just introduce digital thinking a little bit. I'm also well aware, so, um, you know, Wales is um, somewhat, not quite the opposite side of the world to Indonesia, but quite a long way away. And in fact, I discovered an hour more in time difference than I thought it was, or an hour less. Anyway, I almost got the time wrong because, because of that. And I did use the online tool and it still got it, it, still got it wrong. Um, so when I've been thinking about how to reimagine the world, it has been done with a UK-centric view. And I've not tried to think, how might this be for Indonesia? Because I'm going to get that wrong. But I think the fundamental process of doing reimagination is something that, that shares. The details are going to differ. And, and you know sometimes that will be very obvious. The other thing I'll say at this stage though is that we are all across the world, we are in a shared experience that is unusual. And, um, and, and that's, that's both, you know, you see both division and commonality being a, a, across the world because of this. Um, but also I think most countries are realizing they're doing things in ways which are so different they didn't believe were possible. We realize that our day-to-day, -day, the way we do things, is not fixed. This issue of digitality is something that I've been talking about way before the current coronavirus crisis, but I think it's brought into sharp relief of it. It is about saying that the way things are does not have to be the way they are forever. I think that's a message that we're all going to see and we have to think about in our own ways in our different societies. This is my breathe point. <laughs> see those two stars? That's so Alan Breathe. Okay, so first of all, deep digitality. So um, I'm going to take you back to Wales now. So I was brought up in Cardiff and on that picture, it's, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but it's around there at the bottom of the Taff and the Ely and the... Um, uh, rivers and the Rumney rivers all coming down to the sea there. The, the bit north of Cardiff that you can see here is the, uh, is the Wales Coal Valleys. Um, so it's a mountainous region and you can see the rivers flowing out of the mountains and that looks perfectly reasonable. It looks perfectly reasonable until you look at the geology underlying the mountainous region. And the geology is a syncline that layers of rock are like a bowl they go up at the outside and down in the middle. Um, and that's critical economically because it meant the coal measures got at the surface at the edge and then people knew that it was below and then dug down to them. So the, the whole economy of the area, and at one point um, Cardiff was the biggest port in the world. The first million pound cheque was signed in Cardiff because of the coal and the steel that went with it. But the geology and what you see in terms of the river pattern don't match. You might expect, given the rock strata does that, that there should be like a, a huge lake up in the middle of the mountains, or at the very least, all the rivers coming together like a fan with a big one coming out. And the reason is, and I learned about this in school, it's one of the few words, I'm not very good at remembering terms, one of the few terms I remember from school and from school geography, is this is called a superimposed drainage pattern. The drainage pattern was there before 
the, um, the geology changed. And as the geology changed, as the rocks sunk in the middle and rose at the edge, the existing rivers just kept cutting the same roots that they had before. So you might be wondering why I'm giving you a lesson in, in geography and geology here. But I reckon that this is exactly what is happening in our modern world with digital technology. The patterns of industry, the patterns of commerce, the patterns of government, the patterns of health systems, of education, are ones that have been set in place before digital technology. And what's happening is the geology of digital is, is changing. The digital geology of the world has shifted, and yet our patterns are maintained. And all we do is we sort of sticky plaster bits of digital. So just like those rivers keep kept cutting their path, even though the, the, the land underneath changed, we see the same happen. I mean, it's not absolutely everywhere, but in so many parts of life. But that doesn't need to be that way. Um, about, oh, it's the best part of two years ago now, I think this is, I um, wrote a piece for um, Interactions, ACM Interactions magazine, and it was part of the Abracadabra column. And in Abracadabra, you can get a magic wand and you can change something. And so I said, what if the Silicon Revolution had happened before the Industrial Revolution? What if the digital technology had been there before the Medici's and Italian banking? You know, what if it was there before Hippocrates and medicine? Um, you know, what, what, what if, you know, before the first hospital was built, before the univer first university was built, there was digital technology? What might the world be like? And if there are good alternatives to that, if there are ways which you look at it and you think, wow, actually that might be preferable, can we use that as a pattern, possibly to transition between it, or at least to learn about where we are now, and perhaps see the potential for the fundamentals of pretty much everything we have in life to be different. So that's a big, a big step. So I'm going to give you an example. I mentioned the Medici's and banking, um, and money. I mean, uh, is a, is an example of this. So, so like, so money is critical. World, we know this. You know, the British, uh, the British government decided that money was so important it could throw away a few tens of thousands of lives for it. And um, I think uh, President Trump's doing the same in the U.S. today. You know, money is critical in this world. Um, and it has made the modern world what it is, um, but it's not fixed. So I'm going to say there's there's two. Oh, <laughs> this is where the lack of transition shows through. There's two uh, crucial roles of money. So one role of money is about value transfer. If you look at money in uh, Wikipedia, it gives you seven roles of money, and they're all about value. They're about storing value, transferring value. But money has a second role. And it's about information transfer. And the, the reason why market economies work is because it tells you who wants what where. It says that, you know, if the price is high, it says people want something. If the price is low, it says they don't. Um, but also that's true of the supply side as well as the demand side. Uh, people talk about the hidden hand of economics. And that's driven by the fact that it's money that transfers information in market economies. Nowadays, we have um, we have cre uh, credit cards which trace what we have. We have loyalty cards for shops. We have internet shopping, where the information goes directly from the consumer to the producer, or at least to a, a substantial middle person. 
Information, money is no longer the sole and most critical information transfer money in the market. The information role of money has been at very best radically changed, if not obliterated. So one of the two roles of money has gone. You know, when money will changes, the world changes. Now, crucially, that's related to why we have centralised um, economic systems. Um, so this is my, actually, it was my picture of a kitchen cupboard. I was first talking about these issues, best part of 20 years ago, actually. That's, so it's not my kitchen cupboard today. So it looks very, there's a lot of tins in those days. I was obviously uh, stocking up for something. But that was my picture of my kitchen cupboard. And if you notice, there's a lot of items in that. Um, and I call that a high diversity density. Think of it as like um, an entropy measure. There's a lot of information in that cupboard. There's lots of different things. Um, if I pull a, a tin of beans out of the cupboard, I've no idea what's going to be next to it without looking. Here's a supermarket shelf. Um, I don't know if you get baked beans the same in Indonesia as we do in the UK, but this is like baked beans. You know, you pull out one, you know, next to one baked bean can, there's another baked bean can, another one. And next to that, there's another baked bean can, just a different brand. The information density, I call this diversity density, in that supermarket shelf is very low. If you now think about the lorry transporting um, the uh, goods to the supermarket, even lower again. You'll have a lorry probably full of nearly the same item. If you think about the warehouse where it came from, you'll probably have row upon row of shelves all with the same things in. So this diversity density, the information shifts and gets lower as you move up the distribution hierarchy. And that reflects exactly the fact that traditionally in a market economy, money loses information. So if I pay a shopkeeper for, um, uh, I'm not sure what the Indonesian unit is, I'll go for pounds. If I pay a pound to a shopkeeper for, um, a can of beans, and if uh, if Eunice was in the UK and paid a pound to the shopkeeper for a can of beans, the shopkeeper then will have lots of pounds eventually for lots of cans of beans. We'll hand those over to the person who supplies cans of beans to the shopkeeper, but those pounds don't retain who they came from. The information is lost as it goes up. And as you lose the information at the, at the supply chain, the diversity density, the information in the physical product matches the information in the money. Suddenly, when we have internet marketing, everything changes. The information goes right the way up and suddenly you can have picking lines in the warehouse. So suddenly that box that comes to you, if, you're, if you do online shopping, uh, I don't know if that's again as big in Indonesia as it is in the UK, but if you do online shopping, then the, um, the box has lots of different things. So suddenly you see the physical nature of information embodied in, in objects coming through the post and in lorries, and the nature of information uh, with, with um, the money itself has shifted because the information has moved from the money into the digital world. This makes centralized distribution far less essential than it used to be. So the, the change to information digitally changes the necessary conditions for physical distribution. We don't need everything to be as centralized. And you see that in a small number of places. So there is a tendency for this, these things to persist, but 
you might know about things like in, I don't know if anybody, if FreeCycle gets its way to Indonesia, but FreeCycle is a thing where you, you can say, I've got this, nobody wants it, does anybody want it for free? There's a, a central organisation that helps manage it, and then you have local lists. And so certainly you use the central power of the internet to allow point-to-point -point market uh, exchange at a very local level. Um, uh, you think about hyper-local news, I mean, that's not about physical products, but a similar sort of issue. So the world has changed under our feet. But if you think about it, what does Amazon do? It just digs the channels deeper and deeper of centralization. So the natural pattern is often that these things persist. These flows are so huge, although the necessity for central distribution has changed, the way it actually works out continues. And what digital technology does, it actually helps deepen the existing channels. So can we imagine things differently? So I'm gonna give you a few examples and, um, and maybe you can think of others for yourself in your own context. So in healthcare, um, you know, one of the reasons why we have such a big difference between different kinds of doctors and specialisms, part of it is about experience you build up in yourself. Part of it's about having knowledge to hand, instantly to hand. Some of it needs to be instantly to hand. When you see somebody, you need to know something. But some of it doesn't. Some of it you can look up. And obviously, as information is available, suddenly some of the, the needs for specialisms perhaps start to change. Um, some of the differences between, for instance, a um, the sort of your family doctor and the hospital doctor. Some of that's about experience, but some of that is to do with the fact you have literally, you have hospital walls. Um, in the UK, I'm guessing the same has happened to you. During lockdown, GPs are more and more talking to their patients through remote means. So the physical connections, the physical distances starting to change. The, um, in um, Wales is very distributed. The air ambulance uh, flies out and traditionally would bring people back to the hospital. More and more what they're doing is using digital means to allow the paramedics at the scene to access knowledge from the hospital. So you suddenly see that a lot of the barriers and the separations are shifting, slowly but changing. Um, an example from years ago, I mean, I don't know about you, my, my feet are, are quite wide for their length. And so I always wear sandals because I just can't get shoes that fit me. Um, but furthermore, both people, most people's feet are slightly different sizes as well. But what do you have? You have a small number of sizes that come in pairs. And the reason for that is because you need to distribute physical shoes to physical shoe shops. And in a shoe shop, you can't afford to have gazillions of different types of shoe size. I always expected that internet marketing would change this very rapidly. It hasn't. You, know, you can see how strong the idea is that you buy a size, whatever it is, shoe. Um, because you, there's no reason when you're doing a warehouse line why you can't have a far greater range. Um, but you can imagine different things happening. Um, white goods. In the UK, again, this might be diff different across the world, but the Washing machine and white good manufacturers have been reducing their design life of machines. And that's not so that they break down sooner, so that you, you replace them. It's the other way around. People throw out machines well before the end of their design life because white goods have become a fashion item. 
We're now in a world of digital fabrication, which again reduces the need for central production. Um, what will naturally happen is the washing machine manufacturer will replace their parts warehouse with, um, with some digital manufacturing. So the, the same pattern will have, will continue. But just imagine, just imagine if the ma washing machine manufacturer became an IP um, company rather than a physical good company. Imagine if it's the design that they held, not the device. You could imagine digital artisans, local people who might you know, perhaps take some of the central elements like the drum or things like that, but perhaps put different fascias on. So you might have a fascia, if you're getting a bit old and you're not very, or if you're very young as well, it works both ways around, um, and you, you can't remember what program's which, you might have the fascia that's just got four buttons, you know, wash, dry, and something else. Um, you might want the one where you modify it and have the, um, your mobile phone interface to it. Why can't that be done by your digital artisan close to you? Why can't you have a process where you're repair person has the, the 3D print in the back of their van. It won't naturally happen. These I think are changes. So some of these changes naturally happen, some won't. More radically, I think this does work out differently in Indonesia. So I'll let you again do your remapping. In the UK, one of the impacts um, both of digital technology but also of globalization has been the destruction of skilled manual work. So factories, um, I mean, it's not they don't exist at all, but far, far less. When I was a small child, um, I was playing with wooden blocks in school. And the teacher, my dad was in school, he used to repair the, um, the furniture for the school. So he was in the school repairing furniture. And the teacher said to him, and I was only just under five at the time, said, oh, he's clever. He'll make an engineer one day. And by engineer, what she will have meant is not a university professor engineer but a person who sort of like cuts uh, metal in a factory, that kind of thing. That was the aspiration. If I was a child in a similar situation today, what would my teacher give as an aspiration that was not, as I said, not university pressure aspiration, but something reasonable? Um, what will he do when he'll grow up? He'll deliver for Deliveroo. And he'll work in an Amazon factory. We've lost a whole layer in the middle of society. I, say, I, don't, I think that will be very different still in Indonesia, um, but it's happening across the world. Um, the normal way in the UK people think about this, about, about how do you bring manufacturing back to Britain, right? This is a big thing. Um, the way that you normally think about it is you build a big factory, you fill it with robots, you have half a dozen very highly paid, very professional people, and they get a load of other people to clean the floors and to bring boxes for the machines. Right? So you basically have very high and really pretty rubbish jobs for a few. Um, and you destroy wherever things are being made at, at, at present. So, um, but it doesn't have to be like that. Just imagine if you go into your, sh into your um, shop and you tried on some trousers or something like that. I always struggle to fit my trousers as well. Um, and you've got things that is almost right, but perhaps it's a bit big at the waist or a bit long in the leg. You could have somebody alter it, but just imagine if you, wherever it's cheapest to produce, you still produce most of your clothing, but what you do is you produce blanks. You produce things where you've got the, the difficult bits, perhaps the zips set in, um, the pockets, the belt, um, but you leave perhaps the central seams of a pair of trousers open and the end open. So you, you have these blanks in a number of sizes, a number of waist sizes, a number of hip sizes, um, 
but then open at the end. You go into your shop, you get measured, you, you say, I want these, but they're not quite right. You get measured or perhaps your digital measures are pulled off offline. Somewhere close to where you are, there is a, a fairly traditional sewing shop which has these blanks that have been produced in volume much more cheaply and there's an, a small amount of final adjustment. Relatively high value, but because it's a small amount, is, is doable. So it brings um, manufacturing jobs closer to the market and um, I'd imagine you'd see structural changes again. This will be very different, different models in, in uh, Indonesia for this, um, but doesn't isn't destroying the jobs where they currently are, but is creating meaningful ones uh, where they're not currently happening. There is no sign of this kind of thing happening. And so the the, the main way that people are thinking about digital technology in these settings is robots and getting rid of jobs for everybody. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. We can think of different ways. Now, it's not that this is necessarily the right way to do these things, but what I'm trying to give is examples that we can use digital technology to radically rethink the way we, we do things in society. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is, is brief now. I won't do this for too long, because I think I've probably given you quite, it's probably quite a bit to think about there. So I'm going to start talking about a little bit about this digital thinking side. And now I'm going to go back to that last example. So in that last example, when I talked about the fashion, um, what's the digital bit there? Well, if you got measured, you could do that digitally, but you could just use a, a measuring tape. Um, probably, if you imagine the person who's doing the final adjustment, they'll be sitting there with their sewing machine, and maybe there'll be a little, probably a little screen, and it'll say, you need one of this size blank piece. And you know, maybe somebody else does it, or maybe you get up and you grab it and you bring it there. Um, this is going to be highly individualized. So you probably what you do is on your, um, on your blank, you have a pre-made unique identifier that you scan, a barcode or a QR code or something like that. So you probably scan it and then on your screen, it says, um, cut this, trim it to these lines, sew to these lines, and then you produce your thing, it's gone. Virtually all of that technology was there 30 years ago. You know, barcode scanning, you know, it's straightforward transferring information from the shop, to, from the, the, the purchasing shop to the factory. So it's, it's sort of, at best, at best 90s technology, probably 60s technology. But there's something about the way you think about the process of, of providing those clothing, which I think has a digital edge to it. And I've been trying to get to understand how sometimes when you put this digital hat on, you end up with outcomes which may not involve a lot of digital technology, but you probably wouldn't have thought of if you weren't immersed in a digital world. So that's what I mean by digital thinking. What, what are those patterns? And I'm, this is very nascent. I don't really have an idea, but I'm, I'm sort of get edging towards this. So what, so what I'm saying here is, is not finished. It's a, it's a work in progress. Um, and obviously we've got lots of thinking. I noticed Eunice, uh, one of the things you taught was, um, was design thinking. And, it, and probably this digital thinking is closest to that. So, so if we talk about computational thinking, which is largely about decompositional stuff, breaking things up in order to, to put them together in different ways. Um, this is very quite different from that, although of course would use that. 
I think the digital thinking is closer to design thinking, but possibly a bit more um, specific to, to, to digital thinking. And then, of course, there's other kinds of thinking as well, so I won't, I won't go into all of these. But digital thinking feels different. That feels for something. I'll try and edge some of the things what those are. But I said this is first steps. I'm not that I don't have a, a completely worked out theory of digital thinking or anything like that. It's about trying to edge towards what it is happens when you put the digital hat on. There's a number of things which I think are enablers to this, which, which allow you the space to think differently. Um, an obvious one is cheap, and I've said computation and sensing. Activation, I mean, with 3D um, manufacturing, we're moving there, but, but sensing particularly is cheap nowadays. Uh, more so than, than, you know, if you actually want to do something, that's, that's more expensive. And computation is very cheap. Um, and that changes the way you think about things. Some of you might have come across like Adam um, Greenfield's um, Everywhere, which is very much about the huge volume. Um, I put ubiquitous communication. I have not put universal com communication because, um, you know, when I went walking around Wales, and I'm sure around lots of bits of the world it's like that, you know, the likelihood of getting a mobile phone signal was near zero. Um, it's got a little better nowadays, that was some years ago I went walking all the way around. Um, but even now, until recently, the place I was living didn't have mobile phone signal where I was actually living. Where I am now has. So it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere, but it's not necessarily universal. Digital fabrication clearly is making a huge difference to the way we can think about, again, I talked about the way money, the changing role of money, which was my last one, reduces the need for centralization in terms of information. Digital fabrication removes some of the need for centralization in terms of mass production. So we've already seen factories move to much more flexible modes of production. So, so the old argument why you needed a huge factory and bring everything together, some of that was about economies of scale and that just doesn't exist anymore um, because of digital fabrication. So central logistics, central production are far less essential now than they used to be even 10 years ago, but certainly 30 years ago. So these are things that enable digital thinking. Um, and, and I sort of split for digital thinking into two sides. There's some which are, I mean, these are not distinct, but um, there's a sort of human side, which is about looking at human processes and systems and doing that envisaging about how they might radically change. And that's often about breaking the fact that the physical constraints about communication and production and transport have shifted, and therefore we can think about the human aspects of the world differently. And you can think about that as finding better problems to solve. And then there's some engineering aspects, um, and um, which are um, about the fact, I and mean, some of the things we've mentioned, these enablers, that physical systems are now different because of digital technology. Um, and often it's about trading engineering precision for computational power, but it's not just about that. And you can think of that about solving problems better. But of course, because we know we can solve problems in different ways, we can think about the human problems differently. So our, our breadth of conception about human solutions, what, what we might feel are tackleable issues, have changed because the technology has changed. Um, and I'll, I was just trying to work out because I don't want, I'll, I'll, I'm going to skim some slides here because I want to give some time discussion because I said I'm, I'm very aware that things I'm saying here will be, will work out differently. Um, but I'll say a little bit about the human aspects here. So first of all, so, um, so I've got four headings here. Again, these are not complete. These are just where I'm working to. Um, so 
There's a whole lot of stuff about individual versus about mass production. We've talked about that already with the washing machine and the fashion case study. And it's the, the facility of communication, digital fabrication, that, that really allows us to think about that. If you're, and again, why do I think this is a digital thing? Partly it's about the technology, but partly it's about the headspace. You know, if you deliver a digital app and say it's one size fits all nowadays, there's nothing personalizable in it, you'd be laughed at. You know, you, we expect at least some level of personalization in most of our digital uh, um, existence, our digital products. And that changes our conception of the physical products. You know, the old reasons why they're all the same were to do with mass production and to do with the information transfer that, that allows you to actually know what you want where. Those have changed. Therefore, the old constraints that meant we couldn't think like that physically have gone. We just haven't always taken the step to fully embrace that. And said, so if you put a digital hat on, it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. and, and then you can start, once you ask the question, you can start to look for solutions. I've talked quite a bit about this distributed versus centralised production. Now we can have much more um, production closer to people, and but not necessarily thinking about doing everything. We can we can shift where we do we do production in a much more agile way. Um, again, traditionally we think about doing something to completion. You know, you make the whole washing machine. Now, in fact. It, of course, that doesn't happen at the, the large manufacturing scale, but, but certainly once it hits your shop, it's complete, you know. Um, but also in terms of, of many other things, so I've mentioned drug testing policy there. The, um, the way we deal with drug testing, certainly in the UK, I'm sure it's the same across in, in, in every part of the world, is what, from a software point of view, you'd think of as a waterfall process. You design your drug, you test it, you decide it's safe, <laughs> you know, you never change your mind after unless you really get a kick uh, something goes seriously wrong and then you deliver it. Uh, um, why does it need to be like that? It's about risk management. You know, why can't you have things released much earlier but with much more heavily monitored as they are so that you, you can start to notice problems and the kinds of long-term problems and the kinds of interactions that traditional drug testing does not tell you about. So, so drug interaction effects are hard, you know, are not part of your, your absolutely standard safety procedures unless they're very obvious ones. Um, so sometimes we can do things better, not just differently, but much better. Um, and again, you know, the, the most more obvious IT one is that knowledge and um, can start to shift where we put our, our, our boundaries. I gave examples with the health domain. Um, and then I will skim this just to make some sort. There are a whole load of also, as I said, these more technical things which enable us to think differently about human problems. Um, I'll talk about the first just and then I'll skim the rest. So um, some years ago, um, 15 years ago more, um, a guy called Joe Finney and myself in, um, in Lancaster started putting uh, computers behind individual LEDs. Um, as a way of turning those large, you know, like when you see all those little lights outside a hotel, how can you turn that into a display? So what we did, we put a, a single computer behind every single LED, which sounds like crazy overkill. Apart from that then means you've got network computers, which means you need less wire. Huh? Um, and what we've done is we turned, and now these are being distributed commercially and produced at a cost that we never thought was possible. Um, 
but the complexity has been commoditized. It's been, it's been mass produced, those individual lights with the computer built behind them. And what that then did, it reduced the complexity of the installation process. Because suddenly, rather than having one wire per light, you have one wire. So you can have, um, I mean, in some of the installations, have got hundreds of thousands of lights in them, each individually controllable. So that you can produce lightscapes, 3D effects that you wouldn't believe, have believed possible before. Um, and the reason for that was we realised that it's, it's, the, it's this commoditizing, it's the complexity. Some bits can be really engineered in volume and if you put the complexity there, suddenly everything else. And this is the story of digital um, printing, um, of so many parts of life where suddenly the, the complexity that was in the physical process gets pushed into the digital domain. And here the difficult bit about how you turn stuff on is shifted from the physical domain, lots of bits of wire, to the digital domain, how do we configure this? So I won't, I won't go through the rest of these, I'll skim these. Um, oh yeah, I'll stop on the last one now, because, oh no, I'll stop on the last but one. I'll just do one more interesting one. Um, one of the things that it's, uh, again, actually as digital people, we have to think, I think this is probably not digital thinking, this is just being, thinking differently digitally as well. It's very easy when we shift to the digital domain to just say, how do we transfer something? How do I take a book and move it into a digital domain? Yeah. How do I take a, a talk and present it through, uh, through a computer? Um, and sometimes that's the right thing to do. It's not that isn't, and we can, we can release things. But, you know, I, I've, got, you know I've got my paper notes from a talk side. I haven't actually been looking at them that much, but when you suddenly start thinking, why, you know, do I take my paper, my paper slides and make them electronic slides? Why can't I shift through my slides by, for instance, touching my piece of paper here? Or, you know, if you go back to old technology, the very early days of mobile learning, if I've got a book, why can't my mobile app that goes to that book not be about reading it like Kindle? But why not when I have my quiz in my book, my, you know, my, my, um, uh, say it's a sort of a multiple choice thing in the book and it says which is like that I enter my answer into my mobile app. The you know the book has the still picture, the the the, the mobile book um, mobile app has the the um, perhaps the animation. Um, and it's so easy to think of ourselves and we are all being now forced to thinking about education. Any of those I mean I don't know some of you 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 professionals differently but I Clearly, Eunice, you have been forced to think about your education differently because of the world and how you mix things. And I think when we, as we go back out of this COVID world, we will perhaps blend things in ways we haven't before and actually realise that we can see physical and digital things together rather than being separate worlds and we put things into one or the other. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I won't go into all of these details, but there won't be any time for, talk, for, for discussion. So in summary, um, I talked a bit about deep digitality. Uh, I mentioned money, uh, the digital geology has changed, but we can do radical transformations. And the digital thinking is about me tentatively trying to sort of understand how some of the breaking of the constraints of digital technology enable us to think about the world differently. Sometimes, without any digital technology, but but not where digital technology may or may not be dominant in the final way we see things. Um, oh yes, and perhaps last of all, 
Um, I mentioned things like, I, I assumed that those, I mean, it's not those critical society, but those shoe sizes. I just thought that would happen. You know, there are changes that will happen because of the way industry works, but most of those will be the ways, ones I talked about, digging deeper the existing channels. If there are radical changes that will make beneficial differences to the world, it probably needs all of us to actually take action and make those changes happen. They won't necessarily happen with the, the normal workings of, of technology um, and certainly the business. Um, okay, so that's a good place to end on, yes. <laughs> Thank you.